Welcome back to the bag drop. Untold stories in golf. Professor, top of the morning. I'm not happy. <laughs> oh no! Off I the am. bat, we have complaints. You know, I know we're supposed to be timely with our podcast. This can be like an August release, but it's mid July right now. Today is a national golf holiday, and you got me working back to backs. Working? I can't believe you call this work. That's ridiculous. This is fun. You get to talk to your buddy. You get to geek out on golf. What is work about that? I mean, I'm here. I'm in my seat. I got. I do have my phone on. If you see me glancing down and you're waiting on me to ask a question or something, and I'm just not paying attention. I'm I, seeing here's what my boy thing. Tom, my Fairway Jesus, is doing. Man, I'm following him along. He's got to go. Here's over. the thing. Gosh, I can't believe you're talking about the open. I'm always I'm always very conscious about when these things release, and you're talking about the open already. Yeah, I got it. The listen, I know you, okay? The professor goes hard. You you get in, and I I just don't want you to OD on golf, uh, uh specifically links golf before Sunday finale. You gotta you gotta pace yourself, Kevin. It's only Friday of a of a big golf tournament. I know we both enjoy. It's probably our favorite tournament on the planet. But you gotta pace yourself. You gotta you can't these guys that are waking up at the four a.m. deal. I'm sorry. You got it, it, I respect it, but take your highlights for Thursday, Friday, and and then buckle in and then get ready. I'm not listening to you. Nope. <laughs> not following along. Well, we got a good we got a good reason to be up this morning because Ryan Barath is joining us on the podcast. I've been wanting to talk to him for, I'm guessing, God, four years. I'm gonna say four years of just like some of his YouTube co- content. I've always been adjacent to wanting to be in the the club building world, meaning like. Now I have a basement and I got a workbench and I'm like, man, that thing needs some gear. That thing needs some stuff. So he, he's one of the, the authorities out there on, on, you know, build shopping and uh, club fitting. And I'm just, I'm super jazzed to talk to him. Yeah. I mean, following him along or following him in the last couple of years and seeing his growing emergence in, in the golf field and more people um, getting to know who he is and what he does and listen to him, getting educated by him is, is fun to watch. I do have to apologize to him if you can hear us right now of uh, having him on a text thread with Hillman Banks Robinson. I do. I do give him apologies for that, oh. for introducing those two to, to each other. I'll accept that apology on his behalf before we pull him in here because I, I, I too have multiple uh, uh, text threads with that gentleman. But hey, he's fantastic player, one fantastic player in his own right. Hillman Robinson, lo- love you, Banks. Um, but yeah, he can be a lot. <laughs> I got a question for you, Matt, leading to the fact of the day. Um, Let's do it. Is, is there a worst question contrasting experience and going to a baseball game versus watching it on TV. Mm. And where mm. does golf compare to that? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a, it's a heady one. Is there a worse comparison? So you're saying, and I'm guessing the, the, the experience of going to a baseball game is so much better than watching on TV. Is that yeah. What yeah. It doesn't mean it's terrible to watch on TV. I don't enjoy it on TV. I'm not saying it's terrible on TV, but the disparity between the two for me is huge. Just, because I love going to a baseball game. I could go, if I lived near the Atlanta Stadium, I'd have season tickets and I'd go to every game, at least several innings, because I just yeah, love being there. Is Yeah, it's about being there, though, isn't it? Is It's a very, uh, like, Americana ideal of sitting at a baseball game, having a hot dog, Cracker Jack, uh, the sounds and, and smells of a ballpark versus the actual game, which is, if you're watching on TV, you're probably into the actual game. Yeah. Does that make sense? That's how I view it. I'll, I'll, I went to a minor league baseball game with uh, a couple couple weeks ago with our kids. Hmm. And when you have little ones, there's so few places that are like comfortable to go. Usually you go out to dinner, you're like, I just want to get out of here. I just want to be home. Like this is stressful. This is too much. But dude, minor league ballparks are so fun. Because yeah. I think there's there's always like the mascot running around and people throwing things and the food obviously is always junk kind of but it's really good and uh, and this this particular ballpark the the Akron Rubber Ducks I mean yeah, they're called the Rubber, the rubber ducks. ducks what kid doesn't want a Rubber Duck logo right um, it, it, like awesome 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 experience so I I'm now like getting back into baseball because of that minor league team seriously yeah. I, I, we're gonna go we're like looking at the calendar we're gonna start going to a couple of games because it's a good kid friendly activity but I can't tell you who was pitching. I can't yeah. tell you how many outs there were. I can't tell you any of that. I just know it was nice to be in the ballpark. So yeah, yeah there's something about answer. that ballpark experience. That's just that's just great. 
It's just a small baseball fact just because I've been, I love baseball season in the sense of like going to games. Um, so this is the time of year, right? Like, especially after the open, we hit a little bit of a dead period and it's it's baseball, baseball, baseball. So I was looking at some stats the other day. Just one that stood out to me. I mean, Tony Gwynn stats. Have you ever deep dove on those? No. Like everybody listening, just go do it and look at like, just Google the 20 best Tony Gwynn stats because they're just absurd. But one of the ones that I love reading, so he had 323 career at-bats against Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, and Pedro Martinez. Right? So four great pitchers, um, maybe all in the Hall of Fame. I don't recall if all four are. Um, how many times do you think he struck out in those 323 at-bats against against those pitchers? Uh, 14. Three times. <laughs> Only three times. Glavin got him twice. And Smoltz got him once. Greg Maddox and Pedro Martinez not once did they ever strike out Tony Gwynn. Not that Maddox was a strikeout thrower. You know, he was definitely a paint corners and maybe, but caused a lot of foul ball or uh, puff flies and a lot of ground outs. But Pedro, I mean, Pedro threw, threw good balls and yeah, Glavin Smoltz. I mean, that's it. Yeah, he, I think, who was it did a deep dive? And one of the, like the fire pit collect, those guys did a nice Tony Gwynn tribute. I think because they're all San Diego guys. But uh, yeah, wow, what a stud. Yeah, I mean, you look at his stuff, and it's like, yeah, there's no better batter in, is in his, baseball. Isn't his happens. son a pro pro baseball player? Sounds or right. Or, yeah. that's, that sounds right. I mean, if you got half the talent that Tony had, I mean, we'll see him on TV. Who's the who's the Tony Gwynn of golf? Oh. Who, who's like, he just, just so solid and such a tough out. Like John Rahm. I mean, yeah. Like was, just, just yeah. so... I was just physically present. <laughs> timely. He's putting for birdie right now to, to get inside the cup. Turn, hey, turn I, it off. Hey, I, no, no, no. We're not having no, open no, on. Turn no, it off. No, You're no. on a podcast. There's, You're no, a there, host I, of this podcast. No, the rules that you gave me, the employment duties, <laughs> include <laughs> consuming golf just to stay on date. So I'm staying up to date. No, I, I'm thinking like Brian Harmon even, right? Just a guy that like, he's not going to overpower you or whatever, but man. He's just going to keep it in front of him and just get the job done um, every tournament. And I think Harmon does that pretty well. And that's just timely like <laughs> leading right now. Decent. I'll I mean, he's not, he's not upper level like Tony is in terms of like best ever, but just the guy that just gets it done. Well, I, I'm sick of your complaining this morning. I'd like to get to our guest. Uh, uh, we're very timely sponsor and supporter of the pod for our guest Ryan Brath today because uh, True Temper, the number one shaft in golf, is uh, helping us bring this podcast to you. They manufacture True Temper, Project X, Aerotech, Acura brand of golf shafts. Uh, these designs help golfers succeed at every level. So about 80% of the PGA Tour field plays True Temper every single week. And I myself now have switched from Project X to Dynamic Gold X100s in my oh. new Titleist T-Series 100. I, I am... Uh, I'm still getting used to the, there's a low difference between my Project X and my X100, but I'm, yeah. I'm getting used to that feel at the top of the swing. And I'm actually really excited to go hit some balls after uh, our chat today with Ryan. Um, what do you say, Professor? Let's, Let's get, get to, get it. to it. Yeah. All right, here we go. Ryan, welcome to the backdrop. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. Uh, I told the professor as we were getting started, I've been wanting to chat with you for a long time, sir. So buckle up. We got questions for you. I, I am uh, I'm ready to answer whatever you got. Club fitting, history, any of the nerd, any nerd stuff you, you're ready to fire at me. I'm good to go. Oh, if you're ready to I, nerd out, you are in the right place. <laughs> yeah, this one could get dangerous. Um, that, that's just kind of start with with your background, if that's okay. Because some some folks might not know you. Uh and and I hope it leads us to how the heck you got so deeply into golf and the equipment side specifically. Um, where where did you where did you get your start? I always use the like the example of like being a kid that's interested in stuff and like someone who has kids now and seeing like the things that they're interested in is like trying to encourage that. And being a kid that loved taking things apart, whether it be my my skateboard or the toaster broke around the house and my dad like gave me the screwdriver and said go knock yourself out. The idea of pulling things apart was always very interesting to me. And 
when I started playing golf, it was around 10 or 11. It probably took a few years, but I realized that, first of all, you could regrip golf clothes, which is like the first thing that is, to me, is fascinating. And then the other thing was you can actually like separate the head from the shaft, which when you think about it, most golfers only ever see stuff in a store together, right? You never see components all just kind of laying out. And once I realized that was a thing and you're like a 14-year-old kid and it's like, okay, well, you get to play with a torch or a heat gun and mostly a torch. Um, this could be really interesting. And that's that's really where it, it started. And I can remember hearing players talk about adjusting their equipment in like interviews while just watching golf when I was a kid. And I thought that's really kind of fascinating that you can actually affect how that react, how the golf ball reacts when you hit it or what happens when you hit it, whether it be loft or a grip size or a length or any of those things. And to just dive into that and reading old magazines and looking at the old what's in the bags that you'd find in like golf.com or golf digest or any of those things. I loved it. And it just sent me down a massive rabbit hole and I'm still digging, I guess, but uh, now I'm here. And that's, that's really where it came. The idea of like club building, how I kind of started into it. And then as I got older and as I progressed, my parents, because they were, again, if you want to do something, you want to learn about it. They sent me to, I know it's not around anymore, but they sent me to the the uh, golfsmith club building school mm. when I was I think mm -hmm. I was around the, uh, I think it was eight and, uh, 19, 18, 19. so it's just running in high school and they're like look if you want to go go to Texas and like they sent both times they were just like here here's a plane ticket here's a book at hotel everything's got a sh there's a shuttle and all this stuff and just go and do it and they did and I think it was a really cool experience I still know a number of those people that I went to that with. And I think I was the youngest to ever do it because it was me, like an 18-year-old kid and a bunch of like retirees who were really like just curious about putting clubs together. So it, it, it kind of found my little space of, of what I like to do. As that kid, what was that first equipment purchase of, of club building? Was it like, did you, did you immediately say, Dad, I need a blowtorch? And he's like, eh, <laughs> maybe we start with some glue. <laughs> I, I definitely started with a, with a heat gun and a vice. But that was that was not my own. But I, I've 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 definitely said this story before, and I've I think it's kind of very unique to me. I'm probably the only like 16 or 17 year old kid that ever wanted a, a lie loft machine for their birthday. <laughs> I was super excited. I was like, I want to be able to do this. And because we lived in a in a smaller town, the nearest place you could go get clubs built or bent or any of those things was over an hour away. And when you don't have a car or you don't you have to ask for your car because you're a kid. To borrow it, it was like, well, this would actually be really useful to like mess around with golf clubs. So I think I was 16 years old and I said, I really want a lie loft machine for my birthday. And I got one. And then lucky for me, my, my dad is a, a, was a welder and a machinist. So he actually built like a, a stand for it. We put it into the garage floor and I have that same machine sitting behind me right now. It's, it's going on 20 years old now. So uh, that's another little tip. Invest in good tools, people. <laughs> I was just going to ask, have you held on to some of that original equipment and like, what's the most sentimental tool in your arsenal? Everything actually that I have is all original. Like, I, I mean, there's, I've had new belt sanders and a couple like different things, but most of the tools that I have are the same tools I had 20 years ago. And I think that's, that's the interesting thing about club building the art of club building or the science of club building is this, that side really hasn't changed much. It's the fitting side that has changed when you talk about launch monitors and, and understanding dynamics and high-speed cameras and all of those things. But the idea of gluing a golf club and finding a swing weight, I mean, that's, I want to say, 100 years old. But the idea of actually like fitting them is, is the, the part of the technology that is, is always evolving. So I don't have anything really sentimental. I just, I, I mean, the light loft machine's fun. I probably do need a new one eventually, but uh, it's, it's a good one to have, and it still works just like new. Ryan, I, I uh, probably... Three months ago, did a deep dive on some of your YouTube videos, and and just kind of was was probably consuming too much because not a, not a lot of it was sinking in. Like I just kept going, and I was like, oh yeah, I got to do all. This. But I'm I'm just curious now that I'm talking to you live. What what are like? Because I do want I I, I have a uh, an interest in this, and I want to get more involved on the club building side for myself. And my my grandfather was a tinkerer, and I never understood it as a kid. I thought it was kind of like silly, but now I look at it, I'm like, man. He was a craftsman, like he cared about his his equipment, and and I've gotten more to that point. So, long story short, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this now. I got a lot of other things going, so it's like taking some time. I have a a, a grip changing setup now. That's it. That's all I got. And I and I've I've done two wedges, but uh, I'm just I'm just wondering what what recommendations you have for somebody like me because I know a lot of people that listen to this uh, are kind of thinking the same thing too. They just want to get like I think in a way we want to 
you get so into the game, but you want to know your equipment. Your equipment's an extension of who you are. And and I think I think it's a, a I talk to a lot of people on the golf course that have intentions to do this but never do, you know? And I'm just curious what recommendations you have for us. Like what what are maybe three things that we, we should we should consider out the gate as as getting started with our own at home setups. Yeah, if you're gonna start building your own golf clubs and start tinkering, I think one is is a is a proper vice and a grip station or just a, a setup to actually uh, regrip your golf clubs. It's a great way to entry point to get into it. There is uh, because it is a, a way that is quick. It's also something where you can really tinker yourself. You can figure out what you like. I think that's the the other thing. I mean, I have friends who've golfed for a long time and somebody just got fit for the new clubs for the first time probably over a decade and they were like you can get mid-sized grips and i was like how did you not know you can get bigger grips like how is this not a thing like you it just didn't even like cross his mind that wow bigger grips can actually make a big difference so that is the first one first like by by for sure that's the first thing you want to have secondly is a ruler you need a good ruler and a, and a proper club measuring ruler because if you're going to cut golf clubs which is the next thing is have a, a proper saw as well a high speed chop saw you don't want to be cutting graphite or you can do steel with a pipe cutter, which is like a $20 tool. But if you're using a chop saw with graphite, that's a, it's a thing that you really need to do it properly. Make sure you have proper ventilation. If you're you just do it outside on a breezy day, you're not really too worried. I would not recommend doing it in a very small room. I have a little tiny dust collector that, that works for me when I do that. And then a, a swing weight scale, because those, those are the things that are going to get you a built golf club. And a golf club that is within an area that's, that's probably going to be like, okay, I can figure out, do I like this? Do I not like it? Does it feel too heavy? Does it feel too long? Does it feel too short? Does it feel too light? Being able to give yourself feedback with tools that you have is a good way to understand as a golfer what you prefer, which I think is is the thing that a lot of golfers don't understand. They just go into, a, if they go into a fitting or they have a golf club, I'm like, I don't know why I like this, but it's my favorite golf club. And although swing weight is a, is a an, somewhat of an arbitrary number, having at least a value and knowing the length of it and then taking it to someone, maybe get the lies and loft measured. Those are the things that are really going to set you up for successive under, better understanding your golf clubs. And then from there, you can really dive into some, some unique or niche tools. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Take us through swing weight a little bit. I think, you know, most of our audience, like length, lie, those sort of loft all make sense, right? Or something they thought about and it's just intuitive. And those are things that we experience every day. But why is swing weight important? How does that dictate, you know, what goes on with your swing and what players might see if they actually start paying attention to swing weight? So so swing weight is a it's an element of the components of a golf club being put together. So head weight, shaft weight, grip weight, and length. And swing weight is based off of a a number and letter value that there is a there's lots of people think of like D1, D2, C and D are kind of the middle of the road as far as what swing weight, when you're going to find some golf clubs, you're seeing a lot more clubs that are in even a lighter range to help some slower speed players get like extra speed. And basically all it is is how heavy the golf club feels in your hands. It's just, it's assigning a value to how that golf club feels. Now there are ways to trick the scale. So you can have a, I mean, to be honest, you could swing weight up room. You could swing weight anything you can stick on a scale. It doesn't necessarily mean that it, it, it feels a certain way or it's even a golf club, but it originated from matching wood shafts and being able to have something that would hopefully feel the same for a player. And from there it, it transitioned. And it's, I mean, it's the same scale that's used today. It's, you know, one zero to nine a to f so f1 f2 f3 and just, you just go from there right so it is it is that just that uh, a very specific golf scale but it's based off of a 14 inch fulcrum from the grip and that's where the idea of feel comes from is where your hands are gripping most grips now are like i say 10 to like 12 inches long there's really, there's really not a grip that is 14 inches long but if you find some of those old wrapped shafts or hickory mm -hmm. shafts you'll find these really long grips on them and that is, I think, still the idea of being able to have the feel of a golf club. And that's what it's based off of. It's, it, I mean, you can use a, a really fancy digital one. You can go find an old balance that's 60, 70, 80 years old. And you know what? It's still going to work exactly the same. Ryan, we, you bring up uh, it's some you know, wooden clubs, hickory clubs. And, and you are, I, I love some of your retro reviews that you've done in the past, right? Looking at retro equipment and... Uh, uh, many of our our audience, I think, are folks that have gotten themselves into that element of, of clubs, and they, you know, the, the kind of the what you hear from them is just the feels so different when I play with my hickories, or when I pull out my persimmon, the feels so so different, and and you know, 
some of them are probably into equipment, but not all. And and you'll hear things like, yeah, today's modern equipment, you just don't have the feel of this stuff. You don't have the, you know, that intimacy of it. And, and I wonder from your perspective, is that true? Do you think like, because it, equipment has advanced so much over time that we've actually lost those those feels or is it just, it's more precise and you got to pay a little closer attention? I think gear has just gotten more precise and I think that's the biggest thing. If you look at irons, soles have evolved. That's probably the biggest thing when you think, look back at some older golf clubs. And the reason I like looking back at older stuff is in a way, it's very heady, but it's like, you know, if you look back at history, like history has a neat uh, tendency of repeating itself, right? And if you look at club heads or, or sh- not necessarily shafts, but club heads, especially in irons or wedges or putters, I mean, I got books where they had adjustable hosel drivers, but they were not, you know, you didn't have a screw and pull them out. It was a, you'd, you'd rotate it and it was off axis. So like people were thinking of these things 50, 60 years ago. It's just, they didn't have the opportunity to use the modern materials to conceptualize how much lighter and how much more functional something like that could be. And it's really fun to look back at that. And for me, the reason I like playing with old gear and using it is because there's, there is really an understanding of how far we've come, but also again, an appreciation of skill level of players in the past, which is another reason why I like playing persimmon equipment or persimmon drivers or fairy woods and all that stuff. But even with irons, like I have a set of irons that are probably from the sixties, I think it is. And the, it says bounce sole on the bottom, but like, there's really no bounce on them. They're just maybe a little slightly wider in the sole. And if I go out and play and it's a little soft, like I have to actively try to be shallower in my swinger. I'm going to take much larger divots. It's just the nature of the way that was equipment was designed. And you look back and you see, uh, I mean, mirrored the release of like the Nicholas irons and like, they're very flat sole. Like he was a picker. He did not hit a lot of shots and go into the turf. And the reason being was, I don't know if they really necessarily understood bounce that well, but his equipment matched with the, the ground conditions that would they normally played on, you know, kind of created that golf swing, right? And we see that a lot. Being Canada here, we see a lot of hockey players. They need a lot of bounce because they hit down mm-hmm. on it a lot with it, whether it be a driver or irons. And they're a tough, they're a tough group to fit. So you you always look at kind of the idea of what history is and then and as it goes to move forward. And I can remember being a kid and working at a golf store and you'd see like these, I'd say old guys now, but they were probably weren't that old. They'd come in with Rolled Wilsons or Hogan's or something. And then I'm like, guys, why don't you just upgrade? Like, this is awful. Like, this is not helping you at all. And then I didn't at the time really appreciate the fact that, you know, there was some nostalgic to it, that they probably just enjoyed playing it that way. And now, I mean, I got a bunch of old stuff and I just kind of, I'm always on the search for more of it because I think there is that nostalgic side of it, but it's also kind of fun to, to find these little things that stand out that still translate to modern day equipment. I'm a- I'm not going to steer us into the distance debate and all that. Yeah, I, I do maybe want to get some thoughts around there. But one of the things I'm really interested in around the technology debate, you know, so much focus is on the driver. And I think most people, including myself, are pretty familiar with the technological advances in the driver, especially in the last 20 years. I'm interested about irons, though. Like you've alluded to irons, the evolutions they've made. Yeah, I know the bounce sole has been a very popular thing. I remember when I got the... Um, a new set of irons 2015, they were really pushing that, like the sole interaction with the turf was what they were really pushing. Other than that, like what evolutions have we seen in terms of iron? Maybe you might have to rewind back a good ways, but talk us through what we've seen technology-wise there in terms of uh, how irons have evolved. If you want to look at it from a very basic sense, there's been probably four evolutions of, of iron technology ever. Because everyone played a blade, then Carson came along, then the cavity back was invented. And then you had multi-material cavity backs. And now you have, uh, or like deeper undercut cavities. See, Callaway kind of brought that with the big Bertha. And then you go to multi-material golf clubs now where you have very springy faces. You've got faces that are almost just as fast as irons or um, drivers from a few years ago. It's just that you're delivering more loft. And from the ability to use multi-material, all of a sudden you can launch the golf ball a lot higher with less spin. And people talk about loft jacking a lot. If anyone's not familiar, it's like the idea of just, you know, saying, putting a the number seven on what used to be an old six iron loft and saying it does this. But in reality, when you look at new new equipment, the idea of how the face reacts, how the golf ball launches higher, it doesn't spin as much. You can create descent angles, which is the angle that the golf ball hits the green and physically stops. 
the higher you can get that to go. You can't do that with a 30 degree golf club from 30, like 30 years ago is not the same as a 30 degree golf club now because of mm -hmm. face technology, because of how much extra speed that club physically creates the, it's not that the, sorry, not that the club creates speed, but the way that it transfers energy to the golf ball is way more efficient than it used to be, especially on yeah. miss hits. And that's where the idea of combining stronger loss with thinner faces and all of these different elements help create something that is way more forgiving than it used to be. Because I always joke with people, it's like, oh, you play with that old stuff or you go without with old blades. And blades are kind of still blades, to be really frank. But, you know, 50 years ago, there was no other option. It's like, oh, you're, you're a brand new golfer. Here's your blades. Oh, you're a five handicap. Here's your blades. Like, that was it. Like, you didn't have another choice. So to look back and think that, you know, golfers were using that and still playing even beginner golfers and going out and quote unquote having fun is uh is pretty crazy to think now when you can walk into a store and get a package set for a few hundred bucks that has pretty forgiving golf clubs that are way more forgiving than anything you would have found 40 years ago yeah so if i was a summarizer one of the key aspects has been they can de-loft the irons now because they launch higher because of more efficient energy transfer right so yeah it's been lofted down but it's actually long it's or the it's getting to an apex peak at the same as the older, higher loft, but it's going further, less spin. Yes. And a better descent angle. Um, yeah. All that, that put and, together. Yeah. And you can see that. Uh, and I went, I recently went through a fitting and I'm just using it as an example because it's, it's the most recent example that I have. I got fit for some, I went to a Titleist fitting and, and tested all the new T-Series irons. And whether it be the the more players one, which is the one, 100 or the 150 or the 200 or the 350, which is their biggest one. The lofts progression on those, which I think we all we fit using a, a seven iron, were were all they got progressively stronger by like two degrees. So by the time I went from the, I want to say let's say it was a twenty or thirty two degrees seven iron in the T one hundred, well the seven iron was probably closer to twenty eight maybe twenty seven. My peak height was rated like one hundred and five feet. It did not change because yeah. of the the way that the center of gravity is lower in those bigger club heads to launch it up but it doesn't spin so it doesn't balloon so you get this very powerful ball flight but it goes 15 yards further mm -hmm. and for certain players that's really beneficial and i think that's where you you see these this benefit carry on for a lot of players down the line and help them hopefully play better golf and just be a little bit more friendly when they're out there and they happen to miss one i i had that exact same experience in my uh i had the titleist fitting as well went through the the t-series and uh I, I was waiting for the number to just kept falling short because I, I am a high ball hitter and uh, ended up with all T T100s, which was also a little bit of a surprise for me. But uh, it, it just, I just kept saying the number. I'm like, well, that looked like the one that comes up 10 yards short. You know, that looked like, yeah. but it, yeah, that descent and, and consistency of distance, it was interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, I, was gonna, I was just gonna say like, and that's where golfers, like when they look at ball flight and I think, when you want it, it to the, you know, I, I did catch a little bit of the intro there, the baseball analogy versus at the stadium versus watching it at home. Did you get all the professor's complaints? Cause he's got a, a box full apparently. Well, I mean, I could complain about live golf events. I mean, you don't really get to see too, too much golf, but when you do go, go to the range. And I think the one thing when I, I go to a lot of PGA tour events is part of my job. And no matter where I go in the country, any event, there's always people there who it's their first event. And the first thing you hear is, wow, they hit it so high. And it's because yeah. they're controlling spin, they're controlling trajectory. And the idea is, of course, like to get a, a golf club to stop coming in from 200 yards, like it has to come in high. And they have a lot of speed. And, you know, you, 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 you launch a fighter jet off an aircraft carrier. That thing gets up real quick because it's got a lot of speed. And it's the sound off that that shot, which I think is always fascinating to for a lot of new golfers to to see and witness it for the first time. Because yes, you get you'll see it on social media, you'll see it in clips, but to hear it in person from whether it be you know a, a meddling tour player, which is still a very very unbelievably good golfer, or some of the best players in the world who are at the highest end of the speed spectrum, it is just like and you're like, wow, that is insane, and it sounds like that every time. It's like that little that uh, airplane off a, off an aircraft carrier. Man, is there anything better than sitting on the driving range and just watching people beat balls? I think that you made a great point there. That is very comparable to the baseball game. Because I was thinking on golf, like the live experience kind of stinks on the course because it's just you sit there and there's nothing going on. Someone comes through and then you wait another 15 minutes. But the driving range might be the ballpark 
And I imagine that's like heaven for you, Ryan. You between the the equipment that's there and just getting to watch a ton of shots all at once. That's got to be like candy to you. Watching the best players and watching them go through equipment when there is stuff that they are testing is always like a fascinating. You just get to you literally get I get to be a fly on the wall during that experience. And they're at a tour event, so they're quote unquote working. They're not necessarily going through the full fitting, or they're they're maybe working with a one of the reps that they've already had a piece of gear for a little while, but. That to me is, I mean, I get asked questions because I do, I kind of travel for work. I go to different events all the time and I, I'll get questions like, what'd you think of the course? And I'm like, I don't know. I just saw the driving range. <laughs> like I'll be there for two <laughs> days. And it's, I think even the the waste manager, I did go see like 16 and, and 17 and 18 and kind of saw that whole group of chaos, even during the practice days. But people ask like, what's the golf course like? I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it seemed nice. So I was at the driving range. It looked golf. It looked fantastic. I mean, <laughs> I think the, I was at the travelers last year. Uh, and it was the same thing. People were like, Oh man, like the course looks so cool. I'm like, I have no idea. I was on the driving range. They had pizza out there for the players and, and anyone who was there for the, like hanging out on the range. And I was like, why would I leave? <laughs> I get to watch the best players in the world of golf balls. And by the way, they're going to like load me up with Connecticut pizza. So I'm good. Uh, Ryan, the, yeah, the program's uh, fascinating. I'm thinking, since you mentioned your fitting, uh, my fitting's in my head. Um, what are some of the, being a master fitter yourself, what are some of the musts for fitting? I know we could take the rest of the time to talk about fitting, and I don't want to do that, but I, what, what are the, the musts that you think have to occur for someone during a fitting? And, and what, are the, what are the things you've learned have helped, helped the proper fitting the most? I think the, the biggest thing that most golfers do when they go into a fitting is they're really self-conscious about, oh, someone's going to look at my golf swing, they're going to analyze me. And it's in some cases, and a lot of golfers who've done it a lot, they're just like, whatever, I'll go in there and I'll have some balls and they'll tell me what I need. But for a lot of golfers, it's like that first uh, that first doctor's visit when you're over 40. Now, I haven't hit that mark yet, but I feel like I'm getting pretty close. And it's like, I don't really know if I want to go. I'm going to get this information that's not going to be good and like whatever, right? But you're not there to impress the fitter. The fitter's there to impress you with with helping you get better and helping you play better and helping you achieve the goals that you want to achieve on the golf course. And I think that is the most important thing is to go in and just be like, just be yourself. Because to me, play like again, if you want to go and wear shorts and t-shirt, like there's no dress code at a fitter. Like who cares? Like just go in, be comfortable, be yourself. And if you're a chatty golfer when you go out and play, be chatty in your fitting. Like fitters will the everyone is designed is there to help with the golfer and necessitate that that experience and I, to go through that and to just take it in is is really important but the other side of that and this is the other thing that i always tell golfers if they're going to go especially not necessarily new golfers but golfers who've never gone to a fitting before is this is your opportunity to ask questions and just like when you're in school and i i tell people all the time like there's no such thing as a stupid question i do q a's on instagram all the time and if, if someone asks a question, they're not really sure about something, maybe I'll just like DM them instead of like putting it out in the open. And yes, some of my answers can get a little cheeky sometimes, but the goal is to be fun and, and to kind of, usually it'll, I'll, they'll give a cheeky answer, then I'll give them the real answer because that's just kind of try and create that that experience when people are you know, having fun, even in that little Instagram world. But it's your opportunity to ask questions. There's no stupid questions. And trust me, the fitter has heard everything. You, they've heard absolutely every question you could possibly imagine, whether it be, does, does the color of this one make it stiffer? <laughs> like, I'm telling you, we've heard it. So it's, it's good to ask those questions because there's nothing worse when you leave someplace. And if you're going to fitting, have a couple things written down. I've seen golfers who are very thorough and they write these things down before they go. But if it pops in your head, just say it and ask that question because there's nothing worse than going home. Be like, oh, I should have asked because I know I'd get a better answer in person. Ask. It's your opportunity to work with that club fitter. And and for a good fitter, the most important thing is, is always communication. And, and that's what that's what to me separates the great fitters from just the good fitters. Because anyone can read a number and tell you what shaft and what head and all of those things. But to really be able to communicate to the golfer and create this association of what they're getting to help them feel confident in that that purchase because it is a lot of money to go through like to get new golf clubs. I'm not going to sit here and tiptoe around that. So if you're going to go through and you're going to pay for it, get what you pay for. And the part of that is the experience and the communication, working with your fitter and follow up and all that other stuff. So ask questions. There's, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. That I, I, I've always enjoyed your approach, I think, for one of those reasons. You know, it's easy to get... Um, 
into our our bubbles here and, and kind of close the door behind us, you know, and, and it's not really accessible. I find your content, Ryan, to be really accessible because you're not afraid to, you know, uh, talk in as much detail with all the information you have, but then also go to a really high level and and just, you know, speak to people plainly. And and I love you did something on like, let's, let's talk about the golf geek lingo. Like that's just debunk it, you know, it's, it, this is what this stuff really means. And I think that's good. Sometimes we don't catch ourselves to, to do that because we get, we get so into, you know, our, our focus topic and uh, you've always done that really well. So I, I commend you for that. Uh, that does transition us to something that we were talking about before we started recording. And, and uh, I think we wanted to, to chat with you about, cause I, I think it's a, it's a heady topic, but it really relates to the idea of fittings and, and equipment and, and um, knowing the golf. No one wants to look stupid in golf. Right. And I think there's this, this fear of failure is, is the way we were kind of putting it and how, you know, you mentioned how it holds golfers back, how it holds people back. I wanted to just get your, your perspective on, on failure and how it plays into both, you know, the equipment side of thing, as well as the game of golf, as well as life. For me, like to be, to be where I am is, is like something that I, I feel very privileged to have this opportunity to do. Uh, as a kid that I, I would read golf magazine and i would be like man that's really neat like these people probably get to do this stuff and it's like to be able to be in that position and people ask me about my job it's it's kind of crazy to be like you know i was a kid who just worked in a in a golf store and i just i kind of didn't say no i didn't say no to an opportunity and i was always okay with with failing and now again i'm very lucky to have a support system and, and know that's my parents and then my wife now but there was a time when i completely got out of golf and I said, screw it, I don't wanna be in golf anymore. Like, I don't I don't like it. And it might've been where I was working, it might've just been like, you know, I had to commute a lot. It, it, There's probably a lot of factors that went into it. And I was like, I, I wanna do something completely different. And so on the side, I started learning about craft beer and I quit everything out of golf. And I started right from the bottom, working the bar at a craft brewery that was still like opening up and where I lived. And I said, I want to, I just, I wanted to change. I wanted to ride my bike to work. I wanted to go to work at a craft brewery. And my wife was like, if you want to do it, do it. Like, go ahead. You're still making money. Like you're saving gas, you're driving a bike, whatever. And so to be able to do that and you know, within a year I was managing a territory because I, part of it was I'd also, while I was still working in, in golf, I was going through the process of becoming a beer sommelier. Yes, that is an actual thing. Um, you don't need to go down that road. It's a very deep road. But anyways, so I was very excited to get into that. And so I'm going to apply it. I said, I'm just going to apply it. I'm going to do this. Bottom the craft brewery and then started working at, uh, became managing a territory. While doing that, I did other jobs. I still worked as a, as a, on the side as a, a tech rep for an OEM. So like 20 times a summer, I'd roll up, I'd go get all the gear, I'd show up at a golf course and I'd still do fittings. And then there were processes along the way where I took other jobs where I, I decided, because obviously I have no issue talking, which you're probably well aware of, and communicating. I took a job at a, at a nonprofit to work in there, like work for communications in, again, in the city where I, I lived. And I was like, screw it. Like, I'm going to do it. Like, I, I just, if I, if I don't get the job, I don't get the job. Like, like that's just to me was the thing. And writing got me back into golf. I mean, I still played a lot of golf, but starting to write about golf and seeing a lot of misinformation out there was why I started writing. And I did it for free for a website. I was just like, take my information, just take it. And I don't care, like do what you want with it. And from there, it was videos with my phone and putting them on YouTube. And you sure you go see them. You look at those old videos. It's just me in my basement shop with a cell phone and like, okay, we're going to do this in one shot because I don't know how to edit video. And people are afraid to fail. And I think now, yes, I am, again, I always say this, like I'm very thankful for my, my family and my wife and everybody to like be able to offer a support system. But you no, know, I would do three jobs if I had to, to like, just like learn something along the way. I'm always wanting to learn. I will never say that I am the definitive information on club fitting and club building. I don't believe that I am. And I, there are times when I am wrong and I'm okay to be wrong. And it's, I've had this conversation with someone, I know Kevin, Golf Blueprint, one of your partners, uh, Nico, we talk about it all the time. And something that I've started messing around with recently was a long putter. And I played with my buddies and they gave me mm -hmm. hell for using this thing. And yes, I'm not anchoring it and I'm using it according to the rules. But I was like, oh, I you don't gotta care anchor. if I... You got to lock that stuff in, man. I was like, don't, I don't... Don't worry, Ryan. I'm on your side, man. Lock it in. Keep it below the elbow, but you're good. I was like, I don't care if it's... Like if it looks goofy, like I'm going to try it. And 
even now, I think like this is like a this is a very recent story, but like my wife played golf since she was a teenager. And she's a pretty good golfer, but she's never ever once in her life gone out and played by herself. Because the golf course mm-hmm. is such an intimidating place for a woman mm-hmm. who's going to go play by herself. It's it's I can only imagine how incredibly intimidating that would be for someone who, you know, they know they're going to get looked at. They know someone's going to stare at them. And I basically told, I was like, go, we, I'm a member at a, like a little nine hole public golf course that's near me. And I said, just go, I'm going to push, I'm going to push you out the door. And if you don't like it, you can never have to do it again, but you have to go do it. She's been like four times, like three, uh, three or four times now mm-hmm. in the last like two weeks. She's like, I love it. I get to listen to the music I want. No one's slowing me down. And there's no one, once you're out on the golf course, you're just another golfer. You know, yes, some people will be like, oh, I could see them. They were kind of watching me tee off or something. And then of course, like she hits a good shot. Everyone goes, okay, it's just like, you know what I mean? Like, that's the thing is getting over your fear of what's stopping you is for a lot of people and just in general golfers, like, I don't want to go to the range and like, you know, do this weird move or whatever and all this stuff. And it's like, just do it. Like, don't be, it's just your own ego that's getting in your way. And like, yes, I know that I'm knowledgeable, but I'm not going to stand here and say that I'm again, the end all be all of information. And I think that is what stops people from from learning and progressing is just sitting there and being like, I know everything, or I, I think I know everything. I don't want to listen to other people, or I don't want to expose myself to other people and and be wrong. It's okay to be wrong because it's just a learning experience. I know it's one of those like silly like Instagram motivation videos where whatever somebody stands there and they're like buff and they're working out their shirtless or they're doing something or they're riding a big crashing wave and it's like overtones of music, but failure is okay. Like failure is just an opportunity because like, what is the, what is the absolute worst that's going to happen? Someone tells you you're wrong or what's the worst going to happen. You duff or shank a shot. Who cares? Nobody cares. The only person that cares is you. And once you get over that fear of that result, you're on to the next one. And it, and it leads to success. I felt is like in the moment, it feels dark when you're failing, but a lot of times it opens the door or the idea or the thing that is eventually successful. And so I'm curious with, with your own experience, Ryan, what, do you have any examples of failure or even apparent failure? I think, I think a lot of times we think it was a failure and then in retrospect, like, huh, maybe not. But is there, is there anything in, in your life that was like a failure and, and it eventually led you to, uh, to set you up for success? I think for me, not believing in my own skill was something that was like a failure on my own part, to be honest, where I knew that I had value in like different things and I probably didn't value it, evaluate it properly. And that's kind of like why I am, why I'm here now. Cause again, I'm, I always, I'm, I say I'm Canadian. So like, I'm like, I'm just, I'm designed to apologize and like, you know, be humble and, and like not go out there and like shout about myself. And I still don't really like going out and being like, Oh, I know this or I know that or all that kind of stuff. So but to be able to realize, like, okay, like, you know, there are people that like pay attention to this. Like, it's okay to just put it out there because I didn't, I never wanted to do video. I was like, oh, if I do a video, then someone's going to comment or whatever. And I just got to the point where I was like, screw it. Like, I don't care what other people say. And yes, it's a, it's not something where, you know, it's, it's not life or death. It's just a, a video on YouTube that I could always pull down if I wanted to. And to be honest, it's all still there. <laughs> I don't care because um, I, I still get messages from people who go look at these old videos like, oh, I learned how to do this or that. And you know what? That's great. That's the whole point. That's why they're there. But to to look at something and, and go after something and, and not get it, it's okay because it just means you, you get another chance to go at it again. And I wouldn't be here writing about golf equipment and talking about golf equipment and doing these videos and doing podcasts and doing all these things because I can't remember the first podcast I recorded. The audio was terrible did it in my basement with like an old, like cheap laptop that I bought used because it was just like the one that I could afford at the time. And I was like, okay, we'll get a mic and whatever. And it was awful. And I didn't know how to edit it. And I just sent it to someone. I just prayed that it would like go up. And now it's like, I've got equipment. I know how to do this. If I have to, I can edit. Luckily I have someone who does that stuff. Shout out Mark. He does a great job. Um, but hey, Mark, it's the idea of, you know, I didn't know how to edit video and I was, a fr- people will just like never try. And I would spend four hours to edit a, like a four minute video. Whereas now you can go on and you can do it like, you know, a couple minutes. So it's, you got to learn. You have to, you have to put yourself in the position to like fail and learn. And it takes a long time. Even when I got this, I say, when I got this job at golf.com, I never had to do back end of a website stuff. So the first like 
thing. I sat through this like hour long walkthrough of the back stuff and I thought, I'm never going to get this. I'm going to look like a freaking idiot and I'm going to have to message people all the time. And now if I want to write something, boom, 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 and done. I send it off and it's up. <laughs> it's like you have to be willing to do something poorly before you can do something well. And golf is like that. People, even beginners, have to start somewhere. And that is, to me, is where it's okay. Because really, honestly, no one cares that you, you don't hit a good shot. Just go out there and have fun and pick it up if you feel like you're not, like if you're holding someone back or whatever. But like, that to me is that, that that's where I, I talked about the fear of failure. Because you see people, I don't know if I want to hit that shot. It's like, is this shot for anything? Then just hit it. If you lose a, yeah. what's it going to cost you? Two bucks and a golf ball in the water? Whatever, who cares? Two bucks, what ball are you playing? Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think we make a bigger deal out of things than we often need to be, uh, or that they, or that we need to. Um, you brought up there though, not believing in your own skills being like a critical thing that held you back for a little bit. Where'd that stem from? Is that just you woke up one day and all of a sudden like, wow, I just don't have confidence in what I'm doing? Or um, I think I mean I've always felt that I was knowledgeable, but I j- I just never thought that people are gonna. I'm like, why do people care what I think about? golf clubs <laughs> mm-hmm. like why like why i mean again and it, it, i think it part of it stems from just there's a lot of people who assume that jobs are, are given to people right and it's whether it be whatever industry right and i'm not saying nepotism doesn't exist ever, like that's that, i'm not i'm not saying that that doesn't exist anywhere but i always think like i was just a kid that applied for a job at a big box store and just wanted to like do the next thing i wanted to work for an oem i wanted to you know do something else and as the industry evolved right then all of a sudden like there's websites and there's there's youtube's a thing and, and podcasts and more of that stuff and it's like okay well what's the next thing that i can do but basically it's when you think about um someone it's like uh i remember this weird analogy it was like Someone asked IBM, what do they do? And it's like, well, I just, we, we make machines that deliver information. And someone asked, and at one point, IBM made typewriters. Right. Someone asked another company and they're like, what do you guys do? We make the best typewriters in the world. Well, guess what company is still in business? The company that realized that the, the method of their information was what they were doing. They, the actual inherent machine was not the actual thing. So for me, it was the idea of, I deliver information to help golfers play better. And it started standing on a, big box retail store helping someone pick out a 56 degree wedge because they don't know what their sandwich loft is and they lost it. <laughs> and now it's, <laughs> let's understand bounce and shaft flex and shaft weight and profile and grip size and, and lie and loft and these little details of angle of descent and spin rates and and helping people get better at golf is the, is the method, is the thing that I do. But it's figuring out how to get to talk to more people and educate more people because at the end of the day, the goal is to educate people and have them enjoy something. It's a game. This is a, I work in mm-hmm. golf, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm, there's, there's so many other things that I could be doing. I don't want to do that because people come to me with questions to how they want to spend their time in a hobby, not, you know, on their weekends in their free time, they want to go golfing. And it's like, yeah, I get to be around that all the time. Like I woke up this morning and it's like, I'm freaking jazzed to watch golf and under like see them hit shots and stuff and then go tinker with golf clubs today and then talk about it <laughs> like that's fun that's it's like there's not a lot of opportunities to do that and that's why i've always really just enjoyed doing what i do man what it would it be like not to be working today that would be- <laughs> <laughs> professor you're getting a pink slip man you are in trouble uh ryan as i knew the time would fly by here chatting with you um I, just a couple quick hits for sure. you. What are what is a trend currently, or maybe that repeats itself that gets under your skin in equipment? I think people people focus on you hear it's it's more of the consumer thing, and it's always like, oh, this is new, and it's like I it, they're just trying to sell me something. Well, find an industry that's not trying to like create something new, whether it be a refrigerator or a car or like fashion, right? Like they're, they're driven to create something that is of interest to golfers. And I always use the car analogy because just because a new car comes out every year, doesn't mean that your old car or your car from two years ago is a useless car. I drive a four, I think, what is it? 14 year old car now at this point. And you know what? It does a great job. It gets good gas mileage. It gets my family around safely. Yes. I would love a new car, but I don't need it. And just because I see commercials doesn't mean, oh, well, they're just trying to tell me that my old car is junk. And people just assume that because their driver is two years old, 
that it's it's oh it's not good anymore. Well, it's it's the same driver you had you know two weeks ago before you saw the commercial. It's still good. Just make sure that it's fit for you, and you'll have it for a long time. God, it's yeah, that's that's mine. You just you just nailed what my pet peeve is. It's like the the marketing is is so strong and so good that it kind of shifts the the psyche uh, of it. And um, God, it's just like that's why I think the, the the building at home appeals to me also so much. Is like instead of just that constant recycle, maybe it's a tweak or two, or maybe it's just playing around with something and and swapping out a shaft or uh, changing an angle. Um, people, people blame equipment so much and there's only so much that you can do. And I, I mean, we talked about it earlier, but I went out the other day and played my little nine hole golf course, it's like 3000 yards. So I'm not, no, it's not a big, big golf course, not a big ballpark. Uh, but I still shot the same, sc- like literally the exact same score that I usually shoot with my modern day equipment. It's just, mm-hmm. I did it with an old, like I just hit a six iron instead of an, an eight iron on a par three. And because the lofts are weaker and they're, they're half an inch shorter than what my current clubs are. And yeah, I just, I hit a driver and then I hit a, a longer club in. Like it's, it, it, you have to change the mindset of, you know, it's not going to fix everything. You can buy a gym membership, but it's not going to just make you fit, right? <laughs> like you have to apply it. You go buy a golf club and you don't get fit for it. And then you don't go practice. It's still just a golf club that sits there. It's a gym, it's a gym membership that you never use. What about a purchase of less than a hundred dollars that has made the most positive impact on your game? Ooh, um, I know they're not all a hundred dollars, but you can definitely get them for less than a hundred dollars, and that is a push cart. <laughs> oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. Good, honestly, good for someone who has uh, had shoulder problems in the past, just from playing hockey and just in general, like you know, one shoulder is definitely more sore than the other one. That motion of lifting up a bag all the time, I was like, this, I don't need to do this anymore. And probably five or six years ago, I, I went to, of all places, I went to Costco, got myself a cart for just over a hundred bucks. And it's the same one I'm still using to this day. Look, I, I, I tell people all the time, it's one of the best investments you can make because there's nothing like just walk, like pushing your cart down a fairway and just walking behind it and being like, this is really nice. And you know, after the round, my shoulders don't hurt. Yep. Game changer. Absolutely. Game changer. We always talk on this show about things in the UK that that kind of were lost in translation to US golf. That's a big one. They have you so know. many electric carts over there and it's young people using them too. People just assume that, oh, you see an electric cart with a remote, it's all old people here. And it's like, no, if you go to the UK, everyone's got one. It was like a mind-blowing experience the first time mm-hmm. I was there and I was like, maybe I should just get an electric one now. <laughs> Yeah, and like the bigger clubs still have thriving caddy programs, but their members are allowed to take a push cart anytime they want. It's just, it's just more like, it's so so accessible. It's so welcoming. It's not like like you were talking about your wife's example. I, I find a lot of our policies are antithesis of that. They they really don't allow you to be yourself or to be just enjoying the game of it. And and uh, yeah, push carts. Good good plug there. Um, my last one is you got to have some unusual habits when it comes to your equipment, right? Is there one that's like super weird that you do uh, when you're taking care of your stuff? So I love changing the ferrules on my golf clubs. A lot of times I'll get new clubs in and I will immediately change the ferrules on them to, uh, there's a company called uh, Boyd Blade and Ferrule Co. They do all kinds of stuff. Y'all post, I just share their stuff on my Instagram all the time because they make sweet stuff. But yep. I usually get a set, I'll pull them apart. I like to kind of dive into that, those kind of things. And I like gripping my own golf clubs. Like my, I had a set show up the other day and I, I asked, can you just put the grips in the box? Like I have, I just, I want to put my own grips on because there's just something about when I was a kid, mm-hmm. it was the first thing I learned to do when it came to building golf clubs. And it's the last part of putting a golf club together in most cases. So I love the, the idea of just doing my own grips. And I think there's a lot of satisfaction. That if you can learn to regrip your own golf clubs, you get a lot of satisfaction about it. You can learn about what size and what feel and texture you like. And you don't have to drive 25 minutes to have someone put a grip on and charge you five bucks for it. Oh, it's so cathartic putting on grips too. And I just, I don't trust anybody but myself to do them. And who knows? I mean, everybody else probably puts them on the same as me and like they end up the same. But if I didn't do them, then just when I'm standing over that seven iron on a pressure situation, just doesn't feel right. Something about in the grip just doesn't feel like it's on on the way I want it. Totally agree. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Tie, who, who would you let someone tie your own shoelaces? <laughs> no, no, no. Right? It's, it's got to feel like, you know, you know, just the yeah. way you do it. It might be the same as someone else, but it's just the way that you do it. That is like, same with your golf grips. If you do it, you know that it's done the way you like it and you never have to think about it again. And the less things you have to think about with your golf clubs, the better. Mm-hmm. 
There you go. Well, hopefully we get some some disciples listening that are all going to end up with their own grip changing setups at home. Um, Ryan, this was awesome, man. We got to have you back. Uh, if we could make this more regular, that would make me a happy man because I got to about a tenth of the questions that I originally laid out for you. <laughs> anytime you want, you you just you ask, and I'm uh, I'll do this anytime you want. Right on, right on. Well. Uh, Ryan, th- thanks for being with us. Seriously, this has been a, a treat. And uh, where can people find you? Let's get some some info. I know you're all over the the interwebs, but where can folks look you up? So you can go to you can go to golf.com. Always writing there in the in the gear space. You can follow me personally at uh, at RDS Barath on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Threads. Now, got to got to because that's the new oh, one you got to plug, right? You're so um, good. And then there's also. Uh, we have a fully equipped podcast. So if you like gear talk, you like nerding out on this stuff at golf.com, Jonathan Wall and I, as well as uh, Chris McCormick and Gene Parente. Gene Parente is the guy who builds golf club robots that all the OEMs, except for Pink, mm. used to test their golf clubs. He also does his own independent testing, which most people are aware of. So if you are looking for information and talking about golf clubs and gear and just nerding out week to week, uh, you can find us over there fully equipped. Awesome. Awesome. Ryan, th- thanks again. We'll uh, we'll catch up with you real soon. Thanks so much. Tell you what, Professor, that Ryan Verath, he's a smart dude. I know oh. you're a smart dude, but he's a smart dude. Yeah. I mean, just seems like Ken. Not necessarily, I'm, he's smarter than me on golf, that's for sure. But Ken in the sense of just golf nerd, right? Just like... We were just three pigs in, I'll keep it PC, three pigs in crap during that, uh, during that oh, uh, yeah. interview. But I, I actually think he makes equipment cool. That was my like thought through the whole thing is the equipment is very easy to get. Um, how do you say it? Like it's so tied to just performance. I think you and I have talked a lot about this is like when mm-hmm. golf just becomes about your score and about measurement, it, it, it loses a little bit of its soul. And I felt as he talked through uh, uh, his relationship with equipment and his relationship with fitting people and uh, the tinkering and the grips and it like injected soul. It was yeah. the opposite of that like endless pursuit of just ball speed and just, you know, getting getting your track man numbers perfect. Where when, when it's in a vacuum and you're just talking about the numbers all the time, I, I just... For me personally, I'm not much of a numbers guy, so it, I lose both interest, but also I think it sucks a little bit of what I love about it, which is the romantic ideals of golf. And that man obviously loves stats and obviously loves science. I, I wanted to ask him some physics questions because I feel like that's where he was about to go. But he he makes his relationship in pursuit of of fine-tuning equipment uh, a very soulful endeavor. That's kind of what I what really surprised me of the whole conversation. I, I I love that about how he approaches it. Yeah, I mean that was my major takeaway. Like he loves the pursuit for the pursuit itself, and he, you know we got into fear of failure there, and how much the fear of failure is built around a perspective based on successes and failures. Right, you're looking at the outcome rather than just the process itself. And he made the point when he embraced. Just my job is to communicate to people ideas about equipment and just following, like making your life principled, you kind of wash away this fear of failure because it's just about the principle of following through on your principle. My principle, like for me as a teacher, my principle is to impact students, right? Like that's the principle aspect of my work life. And if I get caught up in the publishing articles, did I publish two articles or three articles? Did I get accepted? Did I get into this conference? When I start focusing on that stuff, yeah, I lose. I, I do have a fear, uh, fear of failure, very much so. That's definitely something I struggle with. But as soon as I direct it back and be like, hey, at the end of the day, did I work today in a way that I can impact students? It doesn't. There's no fear of failure there because it's just like, did I do stuff that can eventually impact students? You don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, yeah, his his perspective there is, um, it was inspiring because mm-hmm. you know mo- most of us have that analogy. I think can relate to you and your the fears of, of failure with your students. I mean, it's 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 definitely a human thing, an instinct that he's fought off really well, yeah. and, and he's really pushed it the other direction, and it comes across in all his content and everything. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope we have him back on. If we if we have more 
you know, gearhead related subjects we want to dive into. I mean, we didn't even divert into the the ball debate, right? Yeah, where, well, where he was one of the yeah. He was one of the top guests we've had on where it's like you could always with any golf guest at all on any podcast, you could always get to the ball debate some way or fashion. But I felt with him it's like, mm, he'd be a good one. Yeah, yeah, his perspective especially this in my his knowledge older, of the history. Yeah, older technology for the not just because of nostalgia, but because of its performance, right? Like he mentioned, like the one iron now or two iron can get the ball straight up in the air and the old one couldn't. Um, so he, he actually has that knowledge to really talk about the ways in which technologies impacted golf. Speaking of performance, a massive thanks to the supporters of this podcast and New Club Golf Society, True Temper, the number one shaft in golf. Professor, we'll see you next time. See you next time.